I invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The passage that was just read for us will be our sermon text for this morning. Um, if you wonder if you have clever pastors or not, on Pentecost, we're going to the, serve, the, the passage that talks about Pentecost. So you've got the right guys going on here, all right? Before I get into the text, though, I do want to just say uh, thank you for your prayers for uh, Deborah, the boys, and I as we traveled near St. Louis. Had the privilege of serving a, a congregation for a, a weekend family retreat for them. It was a congregation that we were a part of about 20 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that. I know you're like that. You're too young for that. No, it's true. And it was just a good time to reconnect and, and to be, it was an encouragement to serve a body that had served us so faithfully. So thank you for your prayers, and we're glad to be back, but it was a nice, a nice time uh, to serve another congregation near St. Louis. So Acts chapter 2, uh, it's difficult for us to, to locate our own story in the grand story of life as we know it, um, to make sense of our tumultuous and divided uh, society these days and how it is that we fit in the here and now, um, how to live our lives in this climate. As Christians, we have this hope of a renewed world reflecting heaven here on earth. We celebrate days like Pentecost to remind us. We celebrate Pentecost to remind us that Jesus is on his throne that Jesus is ruling, Jesus is renewing the earth. And that his, as his servants, we are charged to transform the world around us. And for that task, Jesus gives us his spirit in order to make his kingdom manifest in our midst and throughout the world. Pentecost reminds us that our lives are a form of prayer, and this is our prayer your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To that end, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us this word. Living and active, it divides, it invades our lives and our consciences. Grant us your spirit that we might have eyes opened and ears unstopped and hearts that are malleable, molded into the image of Christ. So teach us and help us to see Jesus more clearly, that we might bring honor and glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would have been with us for the last couple of months or so, you would have walked with us through the book of Acts, kind of Paul's journeys so far. We've kind of wrapped up that part. But now we're going back to Acts chapter 2. And so we probably need a little bit of reminding what's happening in Luke or Acts chapters 1 and 2. Because Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this one. And this is basically a second gospel narrative for him. It's the life of Jesus in his gospel. But this is now the life of Jesus lived out through his apostles. Same story, different setting, okay? Now, before Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, which happens 40 days after his resurrection... The disciples ask him this question. They say, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom here on earth? To make earth like heaven? Is now the time? And Jesus, in good form, does not answer that question. He rather, he doesn't answer the when this is going to happen, but he rather answers the, the how his kingdom is going to made, be made manifest. He promises to send his spirit from heaven to empower service for God's kingdom. Jesus focuses on how the kingdom is going to come. So the apostles receive that promise. Jesus ascends. They fill 
Judas's spot among the other 11 with Matthias, and then they, then they wait. They wait, because that's what Jesus said, wait for the power to come. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. See, with Jesus absent, they are now pilgrims finding their place in this world. And what's interesting is they find their place in large part by feasting with God. They're pilgrims here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they are not alone either. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, down in verses 9 and following, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. Penta, that's where we get the 50 from, okay? So Passover to Pentecost is a huge season of feasting. And pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims or proselytes, those who have converted to, Ju- to Judaism, uh, they come from all over the world to Jerusalem to worship at temple. So I've got a map, and this is uh, helpful, hopefully, to, to show. These are the regions represented. And you can see the, 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 the distance that was traveled to get to Jerusalem. Since the time of exile, when Assyria conquered the southern kingdom, Babylon conquered the northern kingdom, the people of God were were spread out centuries before what we have in Acts chapter 2. Jews and those who were faithful to the Jewish ways were dispersed throughout the known world, saturating uh, regions where uh, Pastor John and Terry, who was with us a few weeks back, served uh, serve, continue to serve. And every direction from Jerusalem, you can see it's just like explosion. They, they go out, but now they're coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of Passover and then of Pentecost. For devout followers living hundreds or thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, the temple was but a, a figment of their imagination as they couldn't enter the temple without great effort to get there. And the temple was central to the life of Israelites. So the question, how would we locate our lives? We live hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from the temple. How do we locate our lives in the story of God and his redemption, in the story of his people, wherever they inhabit the place? Well, pilgrimage for some of them to Jerusalem and temple worship places them in God's redemptive story. There's going to be a quiz on that later, so we're, but we're going to put the map down for now. Thanks, guys. When they... When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. See, the Spirit locates our stories in the story of Pentecost. But why all this effort to Jerusalem for a few good feasts? I mean, I like a good meal too, but that's a long way. Why would they travel all that way for a couple of festivals? Well, it's to inhabit God's story of salvation. So much biblical imagery is captured in this festival of Pentecost. We can't keep it all in mind, but throughout the sermon, we're going to try to picture what it is that the the expectation of at Pentecost. We're going to try and paint a picture of what it is these these pilgrims are looking for, how it is they are locating their selves, their lives, their story in God's story at Pentecost. Well, Pentecost was also known as a feast of first fruits, the annual festival 50 days over Passover. So think of 
Passover. That's the Jewish story of salvation. It was captured in that feast. From slavery to freedom, captured in a feast. From the death of a sacrificial lamb, which substitutes the innocent for the guilty. For the blood that was applied to the doorposts of their hearts, which would atone for the sin, so that the angel of death would pass over them. They have an exodus in the blood of the Passover lamb. They move from death to life as they journey on through waters of judgment in the Red Sea, then through wilderness testing and trial. They arrive 50 days after their exodus at Mount Sinai to receive God's word so that they might be given broken for the life of the world. Now, Passover and Pentecost... Those two feasts. I want us to think about, they're, they're, <clears throat> they were tied very closely to the earth. They happen around the agricultural schedule, the calendar. Uh, the, there's a fallow land that is transformed into pr- a fruitful field. And Pentecost celebrates the, the first fruits, which means that there's a full, pro- a full harvest that is promised and anticipated. I point this out because it's important to understand that that religious festivals were not intended to temporarily remove people from the world or their story in it, right? Religious festivals aren't to take us out of the world to feast up, up here with God and leave the world behind. These festivals are given in this world so that heaven would converge with earth in these festivals, The feasts are given for people to inhabit God's larger story of redemption so that people in these these stories would be transformed in his grace, that they would then be sent out to serve his kingdom in this world. At festival, people meet and eat with the living God as they meet and eat with one another. They rejoice in their deliverance together. They are strengthened for his service together. They rest in his joy together. Passover and Pentecost form a people in the story of God's salvation on this earth. So for us, why do we celebrate Pentecost every year? So that we might remember Pentecost, so that we might inhabit God's salvation on this earth as well. But see, we we celebrate Passover now as a fulfillment of what came before it. A fulfillment of Old Testament festivals. Jesus is the Passover lamb who ascends as the first fruits of a transformed world. So what that means now is that there is a man dwelling in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. You have earth converging with heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. Passover and Pentecost form this kind of people. Pentecost is when Jesus sends his spirit. The ascended Jesus converges heaven or earth to heaven so that when he sends his spirit, what happens? Heaven converges with earth. This is the image I want us to think about with Pentecost. You have heaven converging with earth. Pentecost was celebrated as a memorial feast of God as he gave his law at Sinai. So in Acts chapters 1 and 2, Passover to Pentecost is the giving of law, finding fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. They don't come down with tablets of stone from the upper room here, but they come down anointed by the Spirit to preach God's word, God's law, God's commands to a watching world. The word of God is not written on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. And that word is given to unite 
people under one head as one body. See, the Spirit's purpose is to help locate us in the story of God's redemption. The Spirit unites. If we look at the the following verses in chapter 2, verse 1, they they were gathered in one place, verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Another image I want us to think about is how the Spirit unites Many different tongues and nations are represented, but they all hear one word. The imagery here of what's happening in this upper room, you could almost parallel it with chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, couldn't you? There's a new creation going on here. A new people created as God's breath blows into Adam's and and Eve's, uh, renewed now in the image of Christ. At this uh, upper room, it's the image of God's spirit filling the tabernacle and filling the temple But now God's people are living stones who are filled with the glory of the living God, inflamed as as cherubim, handing fiery coals to cleanse the lips of prophets, a people united under one word, one creed, the good news of Jesus Christ, his victory over Satan, sin, and death. The Spirit unites to form a new people in the image of Christ, his temple, his body. An image that was read for us in our Old Testament passage that's connected to Pentecost here is out of the Tower of Babel, right? What's that story? You have a proud people ascending their man-made upper room, a tower of hubris to inhabit, a choosing to make a name for themselves. So you've got man trying to rise up, to ascend to heaven on their own. But what happens? God has to descend. He's far above them. He has to descend. And in his descending, he divides a people from one lip to a confusion of languages. And he disperses them throughout the world. But what do you have at Pentecost? You have the nations of the world converging into one place. You have a lips of many, many different lips, many different languages represented. But yet now there is one word that is spoken and heard by all tongues and nations represented there. The disciples, the apostles are dwelling in the Christ-ordained upper room as his glory descends like a dove, similar to when Jesus was baptized and the dove descended, the spirit descended in form of a dove. His spirit is now animating his people with God's breath. People from throughout the world are gathered. Though many languages are spoken, there is a singular message heard. So you, so you see the imagery of Babel being reversed here? So you have the spirit united under one lip, one language, one message under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that message is what? To go out to the nations, right? The nations have come to Jerusalem, but now they're going to disperse and spread out. If we jump down to chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. Both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The Spirit is given to unite people under one head who is Jesus Christ. And what they're preaching here is just summed up in the mighty works of God here. Peter will expound on that a little bit more in later verses, which are for another time. But how does Pentecost help us locate our story in God's story of redemption? I think that's what people were asking in Acts chapter 2 as this event is unfolding and, and that the apostles are speaking languages that they, from the different regions of the world. They're wondering, what is going on here? Look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And then down to verse 12 and 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this, what does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. They are filled with new wine. The Spirit is given to empower the apostles and followers of Jesus. He's given to unite all under one head. And we recognize here that it's the Spirit that does the work to either humble or to harden. How do we locate our story? Well, we're humbled or hardened by the Spirit of Christ. So it's a little bit humorous, isn't it, the response to events at that Pentecost? And some of the responses are amazement, perplexity, and there's mockery as well. And as we live lives faithful to Jesus and, and speak words of truth, like we will experience all of those things as well. Some will respect and some will be in awe and others will mock or dismiss. As we inhabit the story of Jesus and his redemption through his gospel, we will experience some of these things. I mean, look, even Jesus was accused of being a drunkard, and isn't that exactly what they accuse the apostles of? As the head goes, so goes the body. What happens to Jesus will happen to his followers. That's the story of the book of Acts. And one question, this is by way of somewhat of application here, but the question might be that to to, to ponder, is this, are our lives even noticeable? Obviously, this experience was a bit unique to redemptive history. But are our lives noticeable enough that people would even think to mock or dismiss or abuse us as they did Jesus and the apostles? Another question might be, what is our default reaction to opposition? said it's difficult to locate our story and our current climate, and it seems like opposition to Jesus and those who follow him seem to be uh, maybe increasing. So the question is, what is our default reaction to this? Now, We may not endure outright persecution or mockery like we see here, but I think we can expect that more and more as the years go on following faithfully here, that we will be dismissed from public dialogue as we proclaim the word of Christ, that we will be unjustly accused of wrongs. Many of us will face challenges to remain faithful to Jesus in our workplace. So the Spirit of God, it is important to understand at Pentecost, the Spirit of God is given to empower truth-telling with our lips and with our lives. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is emboldened and empowered to speak truth as he's being mocked here. As our lips and our lives bear witness to Jesus, we rest in the truth that the Spirit is the one who bears fruit, either hardening or humbling, bringing life or bringing death. Ours is still just to to labor in the truth, as Peter does here. Peter bears witness to the truth of what these actions, of what this activity actually means. He's doing more than simply defending his own reputation and those around him. He begins by addressing the false accusation of being drunk. It's only the third hour, he says. Maybe there's a subtext. Maybe if it was the sixth hour, we could understand, or 
maybe those sons of thunder, James and John, they're, you know, a little wild-eyed, maybe. But no, it's only, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. There's something else that here, uh, going on here. Now, recognize to be um, a follower of Jesus is to be a man or a woman of no reputation. It's an important thing to understand that the mockery of followers of Jesus here is in attributing God's work to other factors. It's in accusing some of God of, 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 of a falsity. Peter speaks truth in order to correct, in order that others might align themselves to that truth, that God's name would be honored, that the church might be built up. Our problem often when mocked or dismissed is that we want to fight back in the same way that we've been attacked so that we will be well thought of well. That, but remember, we are servants of the truth, and the, the truth isn't meant to, to serve us in our reputation. People may not think well of us and may falsely accuse us, and yet we must live and speak truth. So we'll look at Peter's sermon another time, but it speaks the message clearly. And remember, he's speaking in those known languages People from different regions of the world are hearing their own words or they're hearing the gospel in their own language, in their own tongue. How is this happening? They attribute some of them to alcohol. But Peter then goes on to say, no, this is happening because this is what God told us was going to happen. And he said, why is this happening? The end of our passage, verse 21, as he quotes the prophet Joel, this is exactly why uh, this is happening. Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The message is going out in one tongue, one lip, that the nations might come to Jesus and know salvation, salvation of Jesus. That is knowing God's rescuing power, the power revealed in Jesus, which anticipates in the present moments, in the present place, God's final great act of deliverance. As I described it earlier, inhabiting the story of Jesus Christ. His story must be woven into ours. Our primary identity is in him. See, Pentecost is the story of God redeeming his people in order to bless the nations. The first fruits aren't gathered in only to feed a certain people, but that the full harvest would be gathered and then shared for the life of the world. A life of faith is a life of calling upon Jesus and so what Peter does is he, he says, he points them back to God's word, the prophet Joel, and it reads this way in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day of the Lord. So Bob Dylan covered the song, you know, God, is on, God on Our Side. And how many organizations and how many nations sing that when they have kind of their own agendas? Because it's hard to argue if God's on your side, right? So this, this happens time and again. That's not quite what Peter's doing here. Peter is saying, like, God is on our side. He's saying God is specifically doing something, which he promised back in the, in the, the prophet Joel. Peter is telling the nations that they are to locate their story in Jesus' story, which is the same story that Joel was telling back in the day. And that story is now being fulfilled in their midst. 
So Peter's whole message is simply this. This is happening now, and you better respond because Jesus is present through his spirit, and he will judge the living and the dead. Peter reminds his hearers, those who are familiar with the scriptures, about what the prophet Joel said, and this was centuries before this day of Pentecost. Remember Jesus' first sermon when he quoted a passage from Isaiah? Shortest sermon ever. Right? Read the passage and he said, this is fulfilled in your midst. Right? Oh, how you long for those days when we could have a sermon like that, right? It's the same thing happening here. Peter is saying, remember this passage? Today it's being fulfilled in your midst. Jesus is present now through his spirit. The prophet Joel was prophesying about these last days, the great day of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord to judge Jesus told that generation, that day is coming. God's kingdom is come in their midst. If you want evidence from the prophet Joel, well, what does prophet Joel say? That, what will that day look like? He says, I will pour out my spirit. And sons and daughters, male servants, female servants shall prophesy. See, alcohol is not empowering this miraculous speech in known languages. It is the spirit poured out as Joel prophesied hundreds of years before. That same spirit being poured out here is uniting humanity now under one language, under one lip, one message. It is the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. It will be accompanied by wonders and signs, fire and smoke, God's fire. We've talked about it before. God's fire, his, his ish, alights God's man. The Hebrew word ish for fire lights what? On God's man, God's esh, Right? to work wonders in the world. It's like that picture of Elijah calling down fire to condemn the wicked and to take up the offering. It's Elisha condemning those who rebel against the living God, calling down the fire of God. So Peter will speak now, and as he speaks, the one word, the one lip, the one message is declaring both condemnation and vindication. Those who come to Christ will be saved, and those who reject him will be condemned. Darkness, blood, the day of the Lord, these cosmic signs that we see throughout the Old Testament prophecies, they signify a world order that is being ended, upended, in order that a new order comes. A new creation arises. The old is gone, and the new is come. The Spirit is given to enliven and to vindicate as well as to harden and condemn. Pentecost makes prophets of Jesus' followers, not so much future-telling, but forth-telling. All who are in Christ, baptized into his name, are given the Spirit and to be God's mouthpiece, speaking truth in a world of lies. The Lord of this world is the, or the prince of this world is the, the prince of demons, the deceiver. But the Spirit is given for life to empower truth-telling as the Spirit fulfills Scripture. Pentecost teaches us a number of things, right? So the imagery, it's a lot to take in as far as the imagery, and we could talk about a lot more. But what I want us to see is the imagery is old. It's the image that the, the Jews have been inhabiting for centuries. It was the, their, their chance to live or inhabit the story of God's redemption. And now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has ascended, how was that story going to carry on? How are we then to inhabit that story when our king not only has risen, but now he's ascended and is away from us? How do the disciples of Jesus continue to live out, to inhabit that story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ? And Pentecost teaches us that it is through his spirit. 
The one message is his gospel. The one people is his body, the church. Pentecost teaches us to locate our story in Jesus' story of redemption. And a way that we do that, we've talked about for a few Sundays, as far as way of application is, is we must, to locate our stories means that we must forsake other locations, right? We must forsake other gods that we bow down to. We must forsake other idols. We must rehearse the life of repentance well. What repentance does is it, not, it turns us from a false way to the true way. What that means is that it locates us rather than in the story of false God, that repentance locates us in the story of Christ and his salvation. That's a way to think about repentance. The Spirit is given to convict of sin and idolatry. The Spirit is given to open eyes to see our fault and our folly, to see Jesus as sufficient for all of our desires. The Spirit is given to enliven our hearts to respond to his grace, to heal wounds with Christ's truth. And this is a daily, moment-by-moment life of faith and repentance. Think of the life of faith and repentance as a continual relocating our stories in the story of Jesus and his redemption. Pentecost teaches us to humbly rely on the work of the Spirit to bear fruit in us and through us. The disciples waited for Jesus to come. They ascended an upper room. We, too, ascend an upper room as we gather as God's people becoming the living temple of Jesus Christ, a new creation. Christ is the first fruits who goes before us. We are part of that harvest. And we are to go to the nations. The church is the trellis for Christ's life to grow throughout the world. Ours is simply to be faithful. Christ will bear the fruit. We work together as one body with other bodies of Christ in our communities to work locally in this place, in this earth. As one body who was adored by Christ himself, who gives us back to the world and back to the Father in gratitude, broken that by God's will through suffering, we might then be given for the life of the world. In God's grace through Jesus Christ, we are empowered by his spirit at Pentecost so that our lives become a form of prayer, that our lips and our lives begin to inhabit the story of Jesus Christ as our lips and our lives pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may it be so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And now would you bless it to our good as we seek to serve, honor, and cherish you above all else. Strengthen us that we might be united as one people to establish your kingdom in our midst and throughout the world. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus.